Hello and welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode features a conversation with Chris Bateman. Chris is an award-winning game designer who has worked on over 50 published games. His most recent titles include Tropico 6, Shadows Awakening, and the PSVR game, The Persistence. Today, Chris is going to tell us about a new historical game he's producing called Silk, which is set on the ancient Silk Road around 200 CE. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Bob. So Chris, tell us a bit about your game and tell us in particular what interests you about the Silk Road. I didn't set off with an interest in the Silk Road. Um, I became interested in uh, Three Kingdoms China. And in fact, it was a video game that got me into it. It was the, the Dynasty Warriors series. Mm-hmm. Um, I got into Dynasty mm-hmm. Warriors and that got me into Romance of the Three Kingdoms, the um, fantasized histories of, of the Three Kingdoms pe- period. And I'd always been interested in um, the uh, ancient Mediterranean, uh, the, the Romans and the Greeks and the Carthaginians. Um, I think it's something that uh, we Brits have, have always been into in, in one way or another. And it occurred to me at some point, and I think I was living in Knoxville at the time, um, it occurred to me that uh, at this point in history, 200 AD, when the game is set, uh, you have Three Kingdoms China on uh, one end of the Silk Road and the Roman Empire on the other end of the Silk Road. And it struck me that that was a really interesting uh, setting uh, for a game. And I immediately uh, set off with a, a friend of mine, uh, Rob Briggs, who's a, another Brit who uh, lives in uh, America. Um, and we made a tabletop role-playing game um, based around that that premise uh, of the Silk Road. Uh, and nothing much happened about it um, at the time, but it was mm-hmm. always rattling around in the back of my head that I'd quite like to do something else with it. And um, only fairly recently... Uh, did it start to come up with a way that I might be able to turn it into a video game? Excellent. Uh, so tell us a bit about what you actually do in the game. I think you had mentioned uh, to me previously that it plays a little bit like Oregon Trail. Yeah. Now, the thing is, I've not played Oregon Trail. My wife has, because if you're, you, if you're American and you haven't played Oregon Trail, they can revoke your citizenship, I think. Absolutely. Um, That's but true. outside of the States, uh, very few of us have played uh, the Oregon Trail. But I'd, I'd always been intrigued by, uh, by this um, frontier simulator where uh, the risk of dysentery was, uh, was probably the, the greatest threat that you were uh, facing. Um, so I, this game isn't directly inspired by the Oregon Trail, but I do think it's got uh, it's got uh, some parallels with it, and, and it, it kind of asked what would the Oregon Trail uh, game be like if you transplanted it to 200 AD and uh, this space between Damascus and the the Han Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, so the game, for the most part, plays with the player in charge of a caravan um, of a disparate group of characters that the that player hires and recruits at the caravan Sarai that they can visit on the route. You travel between towns and citadels, um, trading um, wool, silver, uh, spices, and silk um, at the places that you visit. And you can also uh, trade livestock. You can either trade livestock to um, make a a small profit locally or to bring them with you with your caravan because uh, surviving out in the wilderness is easier, for instance, if you have goats or sheep with you Mm -hmm. uh, to milk. 
but you're also uh, threatened by uh, the, the weather conditions, the storms out in the places you go, and uh, bandits in, in the rougher uh, places will attack you. Mm. So the player ha- has a certain need to ensure that they've got enough guards to survive while they're out in the wilderness, but they have to feed everyone in the caravan while they're out there, um, which creates uh, something of a, a provisioning challenge. Uh, for the player as they're moving through the wilderness. Sure. Wow. Um, so it, it interests me. I mean, you mentioned that the kind of a original iteration of this game was a board game. Um, and there's kind of a long lineage of historical games in particular coming out of board games and then turning into digital games. I can think, for instance, of all of the various Avalon Hill uh, board games that were eventually turned into computer games during the 80s and the 90s and early 2000s. So I'm wondering, you know, in that process of converting from analog to digital, uh, is there anything that you've kind of added on to the game? Is there anything that uh, you might have taken away? What What is that process like? Yeah, but I mean, it started as a, a tabletop role-playing game uh, rather than a, a board game as such. Um, but of course, the tabletop role-playing games descend from the board games because Dungeons & Dragons has a, a direct connection to uh, via Avalon Hill. If there hadn't been Avalon Hill, there'd have been no chainmail. If there'd been no chainmail, there would have been no Dungeons & Dragons. I think... The, the connection with the role-playing game, it, it just reflects the fact that I've always been into uh, role-playing games, both tabletop role-playing games and uh, video game uh, role-playing games. And in fact, I think if I could have made a living making tabletop role-playing games, I probably would have done, but uh, it was very difficult to do so and much easier to get paid working uh, on video games. So in terms of your approach to this game... I mean, was there any sort of historical research that went into it? Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about what kind of work you've done uh, to get the background right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I, I voraciously read everything I can lay my hands on most of the time anyway. And I've certainly been doing a lot of reading uh, about putting this uh, one together. I had a fair idea of of, uh, the culture in the Mediterranean end of it, the Greek and Roman culture. And and Mm -hmm. after having studied Romance of the Three Kingdoms and got a fair idea of what was going on in Han, China. But then everything in between was a complete mystery to me. I knew very little about the Parthian Empire, which which Rome spars with for several hundred years, um, other than the fact that um, I I knew that some of the Roman historians had uh, written about some failed uh, campaigns against them. I didn't know any of the details of that. Uh, so I had to do some reading up on the Parthians, which was was interesting in itself. But there's not a great deal to go on other than these uh, Roman accounts and whatever the archaeological um, records would show up. It was even tougher for the, the, the middle kingdom of the four kingdoms that we've got, because we, we, we're basing the game around uh, the four kingdoms for this 200 uh, AD period. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a whole war game as well as the caravan game that can... Uh, kick off against these military powers. The Kushan Empire, the, the third of the four along the route, um, I could find so little about uh, that I was uh, reduced to reading um, academic papers uh, on um, numismatics to <laughs> learn everything I could about it. It was almost entirely from people studying the coins of the Kushan Empire right. that I yes. built up any knowledge of what was going on. Yeah. Um, but what the, what the coinage showed um, was, was a culture that was enormously cosmopolitan. I mean, to some extent, the Mediterranean uh, was very tolerant of a variety of different beliefs, even if, you know, you still had armies walking into other people's towns and 
taking everything. Um, there was a certain amount of toleration of different uh, ways of coming at life in the Mediterranean at that time. And the Kushan Empire inherited it um, from the Greeks because uh, Alexander had gone out that far and had left uh, colonies of wounded veterans behind in right. Bactria and, and these other regions. So you've got this weird melting pot whereby you've got Greek gods and um early versions of Hindu gods like Shiva. Uh, you've got Zoroastrian fire temples and all of these beliefs all sitting side by side in the Kushan Empire at the time and, and all cropping up on uh, the coins, along with Buddhism, which is not very old at this point in time either. Right. I, I found that really fascinating that there's this culture that uh, has, on the one hand, warriors and, and is fighting with the, the Parthians uh, on, on one of its borders and fighting off all sorts of other little clans here and there. And yet they have this this oddly cosmopolitan uh, world where the, the views and beliefs from all these different cultures are, are something that the nobles are taking quite seriously and having philosophical discussions about the merits of, uh, of the Greek way of seeing things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting you're talking about the research and, you know, kind of coming across these civilizations that we don't know much about except through non-traditional sources like coins and whatnot. Um, I'm wondering, I mean, you know, so many game developers that I've talked to, they say, well, it's great to have a historical game uh, occasionally because then you have so much of the kind of ground level background already figured out, right? You just kind of plug in. Uh, historical detail, and that saves you a lot of time from doing a lot of narrative work. Um, do you see any of that in the way that you've been developing this game? I mean, do you feel like there's a sense of freedom almost in having less historical detail than you're accustomed to, or do you think it helps to have as much as possible? Well, it's fascinating for, to hear the suggestion that having the historical details makes the job easier, because I have always found that to be the exact opposite mm. of my experience in, in working in games. So, for instance, um, some, of, uh, some of the other historical games I've worked in the past was the Air Conflicts franchise, oh, right. where we're working with um, airplane battles in World War One, World War II, uh, Vietnam War, and so forth. And it was an enormous constraint on those projects that they were historical and that we had to make everything fit into that historical context. And although it has to work as a game, you still have to honor these historical details. And that I found enormously problematic. And I think from a narrative uh, perspective, it's so much easier for me working in a fantasy game because I create the world and the characters that uh, are the story that I want to tell. Working in the historical context, working with those constraints is, I think, much more difficult. But it can be really rewarding when it pays off. Uh, Air Conflict Secret Wars, which is, what the, I think, the story I was most happy with in the Air Conflicts uh, run, where we got to do an airplane story but about all of the resistance movements across Europe during World War II. Interesting. I mean, this is a very depressing game because almost <laughs> all of those resistance movements get wiped out. Yes. But it was a really interesting way of going about the storytelling and it, it feels very different from the kind of stories that usually get told about World War II. But again a ton of research having to be done up front in order to get all of those details in place. And it's yeah. it's not like that when you work on a fantasy game. You mm -hmm. can put together the world that you need for the story that you want. So in that respect, the fact that there were gaps in the historical details for Silk was an opportunity because it's an opportunity for me to inject into that space my sort of best impression 
uh, of what it might have been like. I mean, there's always a certain amount of uh, betrayal of the truth um, it, when you're putting together a historical game because you can't really recapture an era. But sure. it's it's the same sort of uh, problems that any media has. You know, films are, are not much better in, in this front either. Yeah. What I've aimed to do is try and capture in this game something of the feel uh, of the era, or at least some impression that will give us a, a sense of something that's different from the way that we live today. And if I if I can do that, if I can take people to a different way of uh, living, or, or just hint at how it could have been different from how things are now, I think that's that's a, a great thing for a historical game to achieve. Mm, great, yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting that this is kind of a, a topic, I think, you know, recently it's gotten a lot of attention, particularly when you're talking about world history, world history courses in particular, there's a lot of emphasis on the Silk Road. Um, I'm wondering, you know, in your development process and your research for this game, is there anything that you maybe learned that you didn't know before that's kind of piqued your interest? I know you mentioned the Parthians before, but is there anything else, you know, kind of on this stretch uh, that you've, you know, kind of been like, wow, this is this is interesting. I didn't know this. Why isn't this discussed more? Hmm. A lot of the stuff that I didn't know that I've turned up has been really small scale stuff that I just had never never really thought through before. So for instance, the, the, the developers I'm working with, um, we were having a discussion about how to deal with orienting the player um, north, south, east, and west. Mm -hmm. And um, there was talk about adding uh, a compass. So I did the historical digging and realized that we don't have any magnetic compasses in 200 AD. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there, are, there is lodestones, but they're not really used for navigation. And um, almost all the navigation is, is uh, stellar navigation, right? It's all right. positioned off um, at the pole star. Um, so it, that completely threw away any concept that we would have any kind of working compass in the game because there's no compasses in the time period and it would have just been completely wrong. Mm -hmm. So we've ended up simply settling for marking one point in the overlay as north and leaving it to the player to orient themselves off that one point of direction, which is, I think, the closest feel that we can get to this sense of you can't just turn to a compass and find out which way is which you yeah. just have to remain oriented do you yeah. see what i'm saying yeah yeah i mean it's interesting you know, when you're considering the ancient worlds and you know some of this is actually uh kind of part of the development of Oregon trail um you know you've got the north star you've got some you know sense of direction with that but so much of navigation at least on land is based on where water is uh, but then also occasionally, you know, depending on how long the stretch of road is, uh, can also be marked out by uh, uh, by grave sites, uh, by people actually dying uh, on the trail, uh, dying along the trail and then burying uh, those people. And then those become the uh, occasionally they become the mile markers like uh, well, yeah, you know, uh, yeah. we're, we're in between these two watering holes. Oh, well, here's the collection of this uh, caravan that uh, passed away on the trail. Here's their graves. So this is our. This is our mile marker. Uh, we've got so many more miles before we reach the next spot. Uh, so yeah, they kind of use impromptu, you know, um, you know, markers or you know, waypoints. I guess you would say. Yeah, that reminds me of something else that I, I hadn't really uh, known about before researching this. Uh, one of the areas I, I've been researching has been the shrines and temples, because I don't have much room in the way the game works to get much of the character of these cultures in. So one of the ways that we do it is we have buildings that are shrines and temples to, uh, to the different um, uh, practices in these different areas. And uh, one of them, the Herms, 
I knew a little bit about Herms in the uh, the Greek context as these little uh, statues of uh, Hermes. But once you get outside of the Mediterranean area where they've got the time and the resources to carve these nice little statues of bearded men with tiny little penises on them, um, it doesn't become practical to have that kind of Herm anymore. And so in the wilds, what you get for these shrines to Hermes are just stone cairns, right? It's mm -hmm. just a pile of yeah. stones. And every traveler who goes by adds a rock to yes, it. Yeah. And those have become quite key to the way that we've laid out the roots in uh, the part of the game that we've already developed is that these herms allow you to see the path ahead because you can see several leagues away from where you are. There's a herm and that tells you that that's a path that travelers go on. And I, I had no idea that there was anything uh, like that at all uh, when when I started to, doing the research uh, for the game. And it certainly wasn't part of my plan when I was looking at which uh, temples and shrines to develop that those would become such a key part in the navigation. Uh, I, I, one thing I want to ask you as a historian, one of the things that I, I keep torturing myself in this game in aiming for a level of historical detail that I think is unrealistic for me to hope to fulfill, and I keep torturing myself over place names, mm. because for, I cannot hope to get these place names right to the time period I'm in. So I keep having to settle for using contemporary names for some uh, some locations because I've got no other way to do it. And yeah. do you think that it's inherently strange to have to draw from a certain number of contemporary names for things? Or do you think we're used to seeing historical places brought to life in our own languages anyway? When we see historical films, they're usually the characters speaking in English. Do you think we just accept a little bit of ledger domain on the naming and the use of language? I think that's right. I mean, you see this uh, with films, of course. Uh, you see this with certain games. You know, I know, uh, for instance, Firaxis, who develops uh, the Civilization series, they're always getting attacked uh, by players on this basis, right? Calling certain cities by this name, calling certain civilizations by this name. Um, and, you know, their rationale is that, you know, of course, they're not aiming for 100% accuracy, but in many cases, as you've mentioned, 100% uh, accuracy is not even possible, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, you are using historical settings. And what my hope is, is at least as a, a scholar, um, is that you are doing so in a way that kind of captures the sensibility of the age, right? And yeah. kind of what you've mentioned, um, kind of, uh, you know, getting a player in the mindset of the time period. And as far as I'm concerned, the kind of nitty gritty, uh, you know, kind of rivet counting, uh, nature of a lot of the criticism of historical games. I'm I'm not interested in that, right? I'm not going to sit here and pedantically attack you for not having the correct city name in such and such area. Somebody else might, but I wouldn't. Um, what's more I important to me? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I, I I I love that you don't want to, but if somebody out there wants to come in and tell me that I've named uh, Davos in Tepe the wrong name because I've named it after the archaeological site, I will love that. And particularly if they have any idea what these places should be called, I'd love to hear it. I've just, <laughs> it's, it really is a matter of just trying to find any names at all that I can yes. bring to bear against some of these places and. Yes. Um, I've, I've taken some liberties and I'd mm -hmm. be the first to admit it. Uh, and I would love for somebody who has the historical knowledge to, to, to have a go at the kind of nerdy nitpicking that I would do on a Star Trek or a Star Wars over <laughs> their technical details. Bring it on is what I say. If, if you've got the historical knowledge to critique what I've done here, I would love to hear it. That would be fantastic. 
Well, there you go. Anybody who's a, a pedantic out there can you know go and attack Chris, attack his game, and uh, he's <laughs> yes, welcoming the challenge. The support the Kickstarter so that you can get the whole game to uh, criticize and not just the demo. <laughs> of course, of course. So uh, going back to Silk, where can people go to find out more about this game? I, I know that you've got a Kickstarter coming up next week. We, we do, yes. It, it, Thursday next week, uh, it, we're going to kick off uh, our, our Kickstarter, which has really crept up on me. Uh, it, I, I don't feel in any way prepared for it, which is quite spectacular. Um, you can go to ihobo.com and um, we will have uh, the latest information uh, about the game there. You can join the, the newsletter there to get information about it. Uh, you can uh, follow iHobo Games on uh, Twitter um, uh, and uh, Huey Games, who is a, a partner with us on, on this project. And I think they have a Facebook page, which I don't. Um, and it, the hashtag Silk Game, hashtag Silk Game uh, should hopefully uh, show you up things in uh, connection uh, with the game. Uh, and it's something that we are hoping that people with an interest in historical games will check out. Uh, although, ironically, this project began more as a tribute to um, Lords of Midnight, which was a classic 1984 um, adventure strategy game that was modelled on Lord of the Rings. And I'd always wanted to make uh, a tribute uh, to Lords of Midnight, but I knew I didn't want to do it in the style of, uh, of the Tolkien novels. I wanted to do something that was a tribute to that game, but with a different setting. And uh, I think the moment I realized I could take what Mike Singleton had done in that game back in 1984 and put it into the 200 AD Silk Road, I thought, wow, that's that's something very different. I wonder if anyone will want to play it. Uh, we're about to find out whether anyone wants to play it. <laughs> that's all the time we have for this episode. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, my thanks also go to our Patreon patrons who continue to support History Respawn after five years of work. If you enjoy our work at History Respawn and are interested in supporting us, please go to www.patreon.com forward slash History Respawn. This podcast and much of our YouTube content would not exist without patron support. So please consider giving what you can. That's all for today's episode. Until next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.